It's the last Just Baseball show of August, which means it's waiver time, which is kind of crazy. I don't think we expected the waiver situation to be this crazy. It's a lot of fun to talk about. We're going to discuss that. And then even more fun, a conversation with one of the best pitching minds out there, Lance Brazowski of Marquee. Watch Marquee, of course, covering the Cubs, but he does much more than that and really gets deep, deep, deep into pitching in this episode. I'm Arm Waiting. He's Peter Apple. And Peter, as always, this episode is brought to you by our very good friends. At BetMGM, use promo code JustBaseball when you sign up and deposit into your newly created account. Download the BetMGM Sports app on iOS or Android or visit BetMGM.com. Place your first bet offer and receive up to $1,000 back in bonus bets if it loses. If the bet does lose, your bonus bets will be available once the wager is settled. Gambling problem? Call or text 1-800-GAMBLER and must be 21 or older. The interview with Lance is awesome. We go so in-depth. Cubs fans, you're going to love it, but just general fans of pitching yeah. are going to be obsessed with it because Lance has is a dictionary yeah. of pitching. He goes over everything that you'll need to know, and we don't just talk Cubs pitchers. We talk Sandy. We talk Cole Reagans, Christian Javier, bunch of different pitchers, including some of his favorites. I think at least one pitcher on every team was at least named. Yeah. So it's a yeah. great conversation. But before we get into that arm, the Los Angeles Angels just waved the white flag like I have never seen. No, and they... when's the last time a team trades for all these guys and then says, you know what? We are doing a complete salary dump. We are done. Lucas Giolito required at the deadline. Done. Matt Moore, who wasn't traded to them and is one of their best relievers, waivers. Hunter Renfro, Randall Gritchick, Reynaldo Lopez, who they got in that deal for Edgar Caro. Yeah. What was your reaction other than were you shocked? Like at this point, yes. it's like, no, no, they, I, I, I 100%, I 100% was shocked because at this point, like you're just so deep in it, just ride it out. But they're doing this to, to save what, eight, nine million dollars. And the way this works basically is, they got rid of the non-waiver trade deadline. It used to be, you know, trade deadline July 31st. Then there's there's a waiver deadline, which means you can put a player up through waivers, then he gets claimed, then you work out a trade. So you wouldn't be able to trade with whoever you want, but that's why we used to see trades all the time after the first trade deadline. Now we don't see that because that was eliminated. You still have waivers that go through the rest of the season, but nobody puts good players up for waivers in a pure salary dump because that's all it is. It's just a salary dump. So it has to be somebody that's good enough to get claimed, but also expensive enough to where you don't want to foot the bill. Extremely rare. It just shows you that the angels are such a dumpster fire that they already feel like they're out of it. I get it. Cause Otani can't pitch and trout's on the IL again. And Giolito has been brutal and all that good stuff. But man, like I, at this point, if I'm a billionaire owner, 
like the optics of this almost aren't worth the $8 million of savings that they're going to have. And now no one's going to show up to the ballpark. I'm not saying that this group of players really helps bring people to watch games, but I can promise you that just dumping them all will make a lot people, a lot more people less interested in watching the games. That's why I said, like we've seen fire sales, but the angels gave us MLB's first garage sale, which is just so on brand for what I think is now clearly the most inept franchise in baseball. Even more than the Rockies. Yes. Seriously. Yes. Yes. I'm, I'm, a hundred percent in on them being the most inept franchise in baseball. I think at this point, so I really listening, am. I, I I'm not disagreeing with you after that performance by Artie Moreno, because that wasn't a GM move, right? The GM didn't decide, Hey, Artie, like we got to get out of here. And yeah, and no, it's, it's, all this. like, he's yeah. not actively trying to save the owner money that had to come from ownership. No, where, where Perry, where Perry went wrong was, Parting with an Edgar Caro. Again, I have no problem with keeping Otani. We talked about that. I'm fine with that. But parting with an Edgar Caro for, you know, Giolito and Reynaldo Lopez, like that was going to put you over the top, I think is comical. I, again, I was fine with the Gritchuk and, and Renfro moves, or they had Renfro. I was fine with the Gritchuk move because, it, you know, they didn't really give anything up. So it was no big deal. Like it was fine. No skin off that. their back. Like that's fine. But this is the interesting part now. You have kind of an unprecedented situation here where, Players that were potentially available at the deadline. Giolito literally, Giolito and Ronaldo Lopez just required a top 100 prospect and more. And now they can be claimed for nothing other than their the remainder of their salary, which is not much. One to two million dollars on most of these guys. It goes by order of reverse record. So, of course, the Washington Nationals, though they've been playing better lately, uh, the Washington Nationals are not going to spend $2 million out of their pocket to claim a guy to play for them for a month and a half, and then the season ends and he hits free agency. It makes no sense for bad teams to exercise that waiver claim. The only bad team that I think could do it is the Padres because A.J. Prowler is hilarious, and he might just be like, oh, we'll take him. We can still do this thing. Yeah, we can still, Yeah, I'll give me Giolito. We can still do this thing. They are beating but, the Cardinals as we talk right now, but the game isn't over, and they are horrible in the, yeah. in the later inning, so I'm not counting their chickens all that win, but they are winning. So my question to you is, who do you want out? I guess it depends on the team, though, but like, these are some good players uh, on the waiver market. We're not even mentioning, you know, Harrison Bader with the Yankees, who now hits, you know, the, the waiver market as well. Uh, Cisnero, a decent reliever, also hits the, the waiver market. Would you try to you know, get one of these struggling outfielders like uh, uh, Harrison Bader, who you know is going to play unbelievable defense out there? Like if you're the Miami Marlins, I'll use them as the example because they're going to be the first team within five games of a wild card spot that will have a claim. They need pitching. They need outfield they need both like they need a lot of different things to try to salvage this season and, and try to stay in the hunt who, who do you prefer like who who are you looking at because from, from what some of the reports are the marlins might go for multiple bullpen arms and i don't hate that approach either it's a good question and just to clarify these are the guys who were placed on waivers yesterday so we got lucas giolito from the angels mike clevenger from the white Sox, hunter renfro again from the angels harrison bader from the yankees Randall Gritchick from the Angels, Carlos Carrasco from the Mets, mm-hmm. and then you have some decent bullpen arms like a Matt Moore who posted a 2-3-0 ERA for the Angels this season. Reynaldo Lopez is still a good reliever, right? So there's a lot of different options out there. Now, none of the options on the waiver wire are incredibly enticing, right? 
we talk about Harrison Bader's incredible ac- defensive acumen in the outfield, but the reality is he's OPSing under 550 against right-handed pitching this season. So he's practically unplayable when you are facing a righty. And now the defense is great, but you can't have a hole in your lineup like that. Some of the worst plate discipline I've ever seen. He's also been a weirdly bad base runner. He's just been a really bad player for the Yankees in the second half. And that's why I was so upset at the deadline when they didn't trade some of these expiring contracts, kind of similar to the Angels. It wasn't as severe, but you could have gotten a package for Harrison Bader, right? Because oh, Aram, yeah. we were talking about, I was just talking about how Bader was struggling in the second half. That was after the trade deadline, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, like yeah. He just started doing that. He was good. Yeah. In the first half, you could have at least cashed in, but Brian Cashman decided, you know what? We're going to keep him. And then a month later, they're like, oh, wait, we do suck. What a shocker. So, but I'm done talking about the Yankees. I'm more interested in placing these guys. Bader, I think, makes some sense for the Minnesota Twins, right? If you think he's better than Michael A. Taylor. Which I do think he's better than Michael A. Taylor. Yeah. Not at this current juncture. No, but. But I do think overall as a baseball player, he is better than Michael A. Taylor. And the Twins have kind of decided, I don't think they're going to play Buxton in the outfield much, even though we saw that big headline. So that makes sense. They're considering playing him in the outfield. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, that's just insanity. A lot of teams could use Lucas G. Little. I know Reds fans like they don't even give a shit. Just give us six innings. Like yeah. we just need starting pitching. And mm-hmm. there's plenty of teams like that who would just need a starter who could just get them through into the playoffs. And maybe you don't use them in the playoffs. Maybe you figure something out. We have a great talk with Lance coming up about he's very excited for Lucas G. Little. He thinks a lot of teams should claim him. So you'll hear why. So I won't fully divulge into that. But then there's good bullpen arms on the market that a lot of teams can use. And you could kind of just pick and choose yeah, where we want to put these guys. Yeah. They all need them. Like uh, 100%. The Braves, the Braves could, even though Pierce Johnson comes over from the Rockies, and I've been getting DMs from Braves fans being like, we got to talk about Pierce Johnson. And then I actually looked into him. I'm like, holy shit, you're right. He yeah. doesn't allow a run ever. No. I. It, what's interesting is like, I don't think any of those bullpen arms are going to make it there because just about any of these teams – that, you know, even the Cubs and you know, the Phillies, like the Phillies will claim one of those guys to make sure that the Braves don't get them. Well, um, Matt so, Moore is going back to Philadelphia. You, you think he, I don't even know if Matt Moore falls that far. True, true. The Marlins might say because I was just saying because he's been there, it just feels like Dombrowski's going to figure out how to get I could see back. that. So let's place the bats before we kick it to the to the interview, because I think that's the more interesting part, because you, you can make the justification for arms. It's going to be first come, first serve kind of thing. How much money do you have to spend? What's the owner going to authorize? Um, you know, the Reds definitely need an arm, and I'm looking forward to, to, to them potentially picking one up. But who, who places the claim on a Hunter Renfro? Because I, I do think that that's another interesting bat. You, you mentioned Bader with the Twins. I think that's a really good fit. Um, you could maybe see the Giants make some sense there as they need some some depth in the outfield right now. They've been kind of trotting out different guys. But I look at a Hunter Renfro who has just been a consistent bat. I know he's been a little bit down this year, uh, but pretty much it's just been a consistent, slightly above average power bat. I, I, I do, it doesn't seem like the Marlins are going to look to to go that route because they'd have to clear a, a spot and you know, Brian De La Cruz or somebody like that. And I don't know how much of an upgrade he really also, is. At the end of the day, Arm, can we be honest? Are they making the playoffs? Probably not. So like why pay $2 million or whatever That's it is to saying. Renfro? So who, who, who makes sense for Hunter Renfro here? Uh, as you look at like some of the teams that could put a claim in, I, it, it's it's interesting because a lot of these other teams are are kind of well rounded. I 
I'm wondering how much the cheapo Reds are are willing to to spend here because they they could use multiple of these guys. I think like where that does was, where does Renfro that, land? That was going to be my answer. The Cincinnati Reds, right? You've seen Jake Fraley go down. Matt McClain going down certainly doesn't help. You know, Will Benson has been great, but they could definitely use some outfield help because you've been seeing Nick Senzel out there a lot, right? Nick Martini has slotted into their more DH role, and he's like kind of been their best header lately. But seriously, like they could just use some thump in the lineup because the offense has gone completely dry, and it makes sense to bring in a veteran like that. It also makes sense to bring in a guy who goes to Great American Ballpark, Hunter Renfro. He could hit 10 home runs in a month. Yep. He's like one of those type of hitters. Now, mm-hmm. it might not end up working out, but he could be one of those guys who just he catches can ignite fire you. in a small ballpark. No doubt. In like the still the summerish months in Cincinnati that starts hitting balls and just gets those guys like a Spencer Steer and, you know, L.A. De La Cruz, T.J. Friedel, guys who get on base to just hit them all home because that's what they're lacking right now. I also don't mind a team like the Giants, right, a- acquiring a guy like Hunter Renfro. Now, their outfield isn't exactly barren, right? They brought up a lot of young guys, like we've seen Luis Matos and stuff, but Mike Yastrzemski is still on the IL. And they're a team that, when you look up and down the lineup, there's not a big power bat. Like, Wilmer Flores has been awesome, but you don't consider him, like, a cleanup 30 home run type guy. You know, Tyro Estrada, Conforto, like, these aren't big-time sluggers. So I'd like to see Hunter Renfro in a Giants uniform, or Reds uniform, but any other team, I don't love the fit outside of those. No, and that's why I think Gritchuk clears waivers because he's also I not agree. cheap. I think Gritchuk no, clears waivers, and and I think all, all of the other arms will get snatched up by different teams. And um, but yeah, I, I I like Renfro in Cincinnati. They just signed Trey Mancini to a minor league deal, and I think this obviously like not knowing that, that not knowing that Renfro was going to be available for them. And and I think that kind of shows you what the, what they were hoping for here is some sort of right-handed hitting masher. Uh, and, and I think that's exactly the perfect fit there. I think the Marlins pick up multiple bullpen arms and then it's going to be interesting to see who grabs Giolito. I could see the Red Sox kind of jumping up there and, and, and making a move. And that no would doubt. be, that'd be a guy that could definitely help them too. And that would be pretty fun to see Giolito. So I am happy that these guys are all going to be able to play more meaningful games and, uh, Man, I think this is just the beginning. Last thing I'll say on the Angels is I wonder if this is like one of the final straws. And we'll talk about this more in another episode. But I wonder if this is like one of the final, final things that like really does Mike Trout in. Like, How much longer can he take this shit? I know he doesn't. I know he's super lax and like just kind of goes out there and hasn't said much about the playoff drought and all that good stuff. But and I know he's been hurt himself. But how much longer does Mike Trout want to subject himself to this embarrassment of a franchise? I, I wonder, and I know not, not a lot of teams can acquire his contract, but I think if he was available, I think Steve Cohen finds a way. I think the Dodgers find a way. Hell, you could swap contracts with Stanton and, and attach a ton of prospects and, and you know, really put a haul together. And I promise you that, that that would be a Yankees move to go do that. You know, like there, there's ways where if Trout finally says, I want out, he could get out even with that big contract. And I wonder if that'll be a story this offseason. After all the garbage in Anaheim, if I am Mike Trout, I am walking into Artie Moreno's office and I'm saying, get me out. This has been a decade of incompetence. And it's clear now you made the move by putting all of these guys on waivers. We are not going to win here. You think Shohei is going to return now after seeing all this? Even before this, at this point, he was not going to return. So if I'm Mike Trout, I'm going to the office and saying, I'm not going to make it public. 
but please figure out a way to trade me. Yeah. And if Artie Moreno says no, you might make it public. AJ yeah. Presents talking about it on foul territory. I thought he made a really good point. Mike Trout has to go in that office and say, this is over. We need to make a move. And he could be polite about it. He could be respectful about it. You know, plug on Artie Moreno's heartstrings and be like, hey, man, like, I, I gave you guys a decade of uh, I give you guys a decade plus of Hall of Fame performance. I, and again, I know he's been hurt, but like, come on, it, come it's on. it's just it's insane. So I, I think that there's some teams that can make it happen. I hope he does it for his sake. Of course, whatever makes Mike Trout happy makes Mike Trout happy. I'd love to see him play somewhere else. And when I'm campaigning for Mike Trout to go to the Yankees, that's when, you know, it's a fucking bad situation. That's when, you know, like I, if I want that motherfucker to New York, like I, I don't even want to look at you when Mike Trout's a Yankee or a Dodger. Like I like fuck that. But I, I that's what I want at this point. Like I will take that happily. Get this man out of the abyss. That is the Los Angeles Angels organization. Artie Moreno, please change your mind again and sell the team. Like it's just a joke what they have done over there. And also Perry Manassian coming out and saying, uh, oh, yeah, we tried to get a, an MRI for Otani and, and he refused it. Ah, well, you just burned that bridge, too. Like it, the fuck just, out of it. Joe Madden. Remember all the shit Joe Madden was saying? And we're like, oh, this is just an old salty manager. Uh, nope. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. Joe Madden's a good guy. A lot of people have had no problems with him. A very forward thinking organization like the race had little issue with him for a long time. Uh, there's a common denominator here, and it's fucking Artie Moreno and it's the Los Angeles Angels. And I'm looking forward to them being, you know, the rebuilding team that we don't have to talk about moving forward. And hopefully Mike Trout forces his way out of there. Uh, but we might as well, on a more positive note, kick it to an awesome conversation with Lance Brozdowski from Watch Marquee. We're talking pitching with Lance Brozdowski. Thanks so much, Lance, for coming on. You're a big part of the Cubs network at Watch Marquee. And the way I found you, so when I'm scrolling through TikTok, there's a lot of hot <laughs> takes out there. There's a lot of nonsense, including what we tend to put out. But then I scroll and I see Lance breaking down different pitchers, using all the advanced stats, but then also breaking it down in a way that a lot of people could understand. And I said to myself, I got to talk to that guy. So we brought you <laughs> on the show, Lance. And I know you do a bunch of different stuff, right? Because you work for Watch Marquee, but I've seen you on MLB Network. You've done a bunch of different stuff. So if you could just let our audience know what you've been up to and uh, how much you like pitching. Yeah, dude, pitching's great. No, I appreciate you guys having me on. This is fun. I've been following you guys for a while, and I met a, a Ram at a at a national collectors event here in Chicago. So we we kind of synced up and naturally flew from here. So that's good stuff. Um, yeah. So I I work full time for Marquee Sports Network, the Cubs Regional Sports Network. I'm a player development analyst there, so I do a lot of stuff on the minor league side, cover the minor leagues for the team. Um, and also do a lot of stuff on pre and post game shows, just kind of analyzing things in a little bit deeper of a lens. Um, those are really fun combos. I have them with a lot of former major league talent. Cliff Floyd is a big guy who we have in all the time. Man. Him and I love going back and forth and I, it was just, it's just fun. It's a really, it's a cool job that I've stumbled into and I've really enjoyed it. You know, I, I, my goal is always to go national. Like I love baseball as a whole. I'm not necessarily like a Cubs guy. I just have gotten into this position and the Cubs have given me a really good opportunity and I've run with it, but you know, I have a sub stack that I started this year, which is just me looking at pitchers every morning, kind of rolling through things and seeing what's changed and whether any of it could be kind of applied to, you know, expecting the guy to get better or worse or whatever. Um, I also make a lot of video content on YouTube and obviously TikTok. I kind of started up this year and whatnot. I'm still trying to figure out that space. I have no idea how to operate in there. As I'm sure you guys are aware, you guys have grown really nicely, but I'm like, 
I'm like a fish out of water. Like, I don't know if my stuff's going to work there, but it's very nerdy and it, it maybe catches some attention. So it's, it's fun to do, man. It's just good to have diversity of content. I mean, it, it's one of those things where now we, we, you talk about how like TikTok has ex- expanded so much and uh, Peter's got the feel for it. Like he's been the mastermind behind our TikTok. And, and there's times where like, you know, I'm as the prospect guy, as like someone that kind of likes to nerd out. And Peter's also really become a, a, a nerd with pitch shapes and things like that too. But he's like, dude, you're, you can't put a three minute video on TikTok about, <laughs> about like one player, you know, who's in double A. And I'm like, okay, all right. Like, and I was, I, it was hard for me. Like, you got to break all of the, all of the like traditional things and like break kind of like what you're used to doing. And it's like, okay, I can't talk about, you know, Roman Anthony for three and a half minutes. Like, okay. <laughs> and it makes sense. It's like most people aren't going to hold on to that whole thing. But speaking of the data and stuff like that, you have, a, a driveline background as well, right? Yeah. Like that's, is that, would you say that's where a lot of the fundamental knowledge of pitch shapes and, you know, uh, everything that you kind of put into that sub stack and some of those really advanced things that you're able to kind of, I think explain in layman's terms as well as possible, but you know, that background and knowledge that came from, from driveline. Yeah. They played a huge part. And I was a remote video editor there right before the pandemic and a little into, into the pandemic um, short period of time, honestly, but, you know, I connected with a former individual there, Bill Hazel, ages ago. He's now the assistant pitcher coach of the Angels mm-hmm. um, for a story on Luke Jackson, maybe back in like 2018. And like, I'm sure you guys know when you like talk to someone and things click, you like definitely want to keep going back to that person. So I just kept going back to both other questions and kept helping me out. And then the same thing happened at Driveline. I was I was basically stitching together TrackMan reports with Edgertronic and Rapsodo before they had kind of more automated process for it. This, is, this role is now extinct with them. But I was just like kind of, I don't want to say, I was just hanging out in pitch design sessions remotely, not actually in the pitch design session, but I would get the output of everything. And then they would tell me kind of what they needed from it. You know, as a guy working on a slider, you know, pitch four and five here, he was doing this, pitch six, can you split screen them? I had some video editing skills, which is why I got into the job. And from there, you make a lot of contacts of people who are now in major league front offices or on-field coaching staff. And I've maintained all those connections. And that's really what it is. Like it's a lot of just multiple years of just asking people questions, texting, maintaining a network and like helping them help me understand. And then me trying to communicate back. So it's, it's worked really seamlessly, but it is a heavy amount of it is via driveline and also just Twitter DMS, which you'd be shocked. I'm sure you guys know is like a super powerful place to like message people who you never thought you'd be able to talk to. So 100%. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm curious if you got any Twitter DMS about Alex Cobb and we'll break straight into all uh-huh. the pictures that we're going to discuss because Alex Cobb was struggling in the last month, right? He has these splits where he's much better at home. He's much better during night games. And a lot of his bad starts have been on the road, but at the same time, even those home night game starts have not been ideal. He is a pitcher who's thrown 130 innings last year and then is over that this year. And then the last time he had done that, was in 2018. This is an older pitcher. But as soon as yeah. he's slowing down Lance, what does he do? Nine innings, well, eight and two-thirds of no-hit baseball before a line drive off the bat of Spencer Steer ruined it, but still 131 pitches, nine innings. What did you take away from that almost no-hitter? I mean, he threw like 83 splitters in that game. Uh, I think Mike Petriello from LMB.com said that's the most splitters someone's thrown probably in the pitch tracking era in an individual game. And it was by like a 15 splitter margin. It's it's wild that he's just ripping that pitch that much. I, for me, it's this year's kind of been a little down here for him. He's not missing as many bats and such. You see the K9 jump down, strikeout rate jump down slightly. But for me, the difference in him was 21 to 22. He's 33 going on 34 at that time period. 
and he jumps his velo two miles per hour on his four seam or sinker, excuse me. He goes from 92, eight to 94, eight. And I know he worked with driveline actually. Um, he was a guy that just got jacked in the off season. I remember talking to one of the trainers there. It was just like, we just told him he had to get jacked. And he was like, I don't, I don't know. Is that what I have to do? And he just got jacked and he threw harder. It is crazy. It's like, sometimes it's as simple as that, but I love the guy who's 32, 33, like actually buying into some of the modern tech. And it's not even modern tech. Like it's just probably better strength conditioning for him. Yeah. And he got his velo up and he found a resurgence and he has been really good the last two years, a little bit of a hang up this year. Um, I'm not necessarily sure what that's because of, I was looking at some of the underlying stuff and nothing really jumped out to me. It could just be aging. You know, maybe the command is kind of faltering such that the stuff isn't like elite elite. It's just good, good to solid. And like, I think this splitter is a nasty pitch. It doesn't grade out incredibly well on the stuff plus and some of these other metrics, but in the month of August, you know, when I do these shape notes on Substack, like I look at things and I often have a lot of like confirmation bias. Like you see a guy throw a no hitter, then you look and you go, huh, I wonder if that thing led to the no hitter. And I got that with Cobb and I was looking this morning. I was like, oh, okay. So the splitter's dropping a little more in the month of August than it was in July. If you just look at induced vertical break on it. And I was like, maybe that's why he threw the no, no. And then like you go out of your head and you're like, ah, that's probably not why he threw the no, no. Like that's insane that like two inches of splitter drop is the reason he threw a no hitter, especially after he was struggling for a period of time. But it's something to keep an eye on. Like those subtle changes, I do think impact guys. Sometimes it's natural variance, but sometimes it's natural variance in a positive direction, such that you get really good outcomes off it. It's just often really hard to predict that. So maybe there was some realm. And if you were looking at early August and you saw that splitter ticking down with more drop, you're like, "Mm, okay, like I like that trade off. That's going to put the ball on the ground more. You know, even if he doesn't miss as many bats, maybe the contact quality is worse. And then he runs into this start and you look really smart when in reality, it was probably like a mix of natural variance and also the splitter getting better. But the key thing for me is with 21 to 22 for Cobb, like he found another life as a solid number four, three in a rotation because of the velo jump. And he's been sitting 95 for a couple of years. He's running some injuries, but I mean, if he didn't do that, he probably would have been out of baseball, honestly. Yeah. Um, I like how we, I like how we brought up the uh, uptick in velo and we'll talk about the splitter, but in that last at bat against Spencer steer, 96 miles an hour. Yeah. Right. Fastest fastballs of the night. Did you see that? Yeah, 2021 I, Cobb would not have done that. No, no, way, right? no, no. And and I don't even know if he's still, you know, in, in the shape at that point to be able to, to to be standing on his feet at 130 pitches the way he was. You could see him breathing, but but he yeah. was still able to, 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 you know, I think attack the strike zone the way he was. But my question, too, on this front, I'm it's it's two pronged because I want to get into pitches of similar action. And, and why I think, sure. you know, sometimes it's kind of tough to to be a big whiff guy when it's sinker splitter. But specifically, I'm looking at this start now with Alex Cobb. And then I look at what Kyle Harrison did uh, mm. the, the day before. What did Harrison do? He threw 70 percent fastballs. What is what does Alex Cobb do? He throws 65 percent splitters. Like, how much of it do you think is just them also exploiting the fact that the Cincinnati Reds like was were just not <laughs> adjusting at all? It's a great point. I mean, the thing I think about when you say like really heavy usage on an individual pitch is to think of Lance Lynn with the Dodgers. His first start there, he faced the uh, athletics and threw like 85% four seamers to lefties. After that pitch just got drubbed versus lefties the entire, like, I do think there's certain teams that do a better job of advanced, advanced scouting and like actually being able to game plan. And then pitchers actually taking that game plan and bring it into game. That's probably often where the lapse is because you'll have advanced scouts and you have people in front offices going, you know, we think you should do this. And then you know, once it gets down to the field level, it kind of becomes a game of telephone, right? It's just, it, it blurs the actual direct information to something that maybe isn't as actionable or the catcher doesn't buy in or the pitching coach doesn't buy in, which doesn't allow the catcher to buy in. And then you get a different on-field result relative to what, you know, maybe analytics and some other mixing of pitcher strengths thought would have been successful in that situation. 
So, I mean, I do think there's situations where like you have a good pitch and you're facing a team that you think it matches up well against like game theory and go well beyond what that they're expecting as a lineup. You know, like Kyle Harrison was a 70% four seam. When it, he was dominated, like, like, yeah, it was like 60 something, like high 60s, 67%. Yeah. And like that might work in an individual outing going forward. Like maybe he needs to slur the play a little better. I think he's thrown a cutter in there from what I was looking at with plots. It's just not being tracked as such. So I'd be curious to like see that tick up if that's actually uh, grades out as a good pitch. But I do think there's merit to just like ripping a pitch that is really good a lot. And, you know, if the team isn't expecting it, I don't know how you react in game to it, especially because like, you could also think if he's turning over the lineup, say he does it through one inning and it's like 80%. It's like, okay, now next time around, he's not going to do that. And then he does it. And you're like, I, I don't know what to do. He's not going to do it the third time through. And then he does it again. It's like, there's that game theory chess match of baseball is fascinating all the time to me. Standy, right? We talk about him all the time. Just moving forward to another pitcher who also pitched on the same day as Alex Cobb's no hitter. And the stat line didn't reflect what happened in the game. He got hosed. I watched that one. He got absolutely (laughs) hosed. His entire season has been like that, man. (laughs) Seriously. And I want to talk about his entire season because he's a guy that we ranked as the number one pitcher moving in. How could you not? Unanimous. Or I don't know if he was unanimous, right, Arm? He he was. I think first place unanimous, but yeah. I think he got every first place vote. For National League Cy Young. Just an unbelievable workhorse. And he's been able to throw plenty of innings. He's one of the league leaders in innings this year. But we've talked about the difference in the changeup. And it just doesn't look like the same Sandy. We saw that potentially he was making those adjustments, right? There was a couple of nine-inning shutout performances at home. But on on the road, it's been a little bit shaky. What have you seen from Sandy this year? And are you worried long term? Or do you think this is just a little bit of a blip? It's tough, yeah. I think you nailed a couple of things that I saw, too, is like, Change-up slug was below 200 last year. Now it's about 400. The problem there is that I don't see anything different in the actual shape or how he's releasing the ball or even location or anything that's causing that pitch to play down, which is weird. It makes me think it's almost like a fastball interaction thing because change-ups are, are so... I mean, Stuff Plus generally doesn't do a good job, I think, of capturing the value of change-ups most of the time. So like in most of those situations, I'm probably just looking at bad ball quality and something like swing-miss on it and just kind of backing to whether I think it's a plus pitch off that as opposed to looking at Stuff Plus. Um, and I imagine some front offices maybe rely more on location than other pitches for that. Like there's a lot of variables there that I think go into changeups that maybe aren't really captured in an objective number, but it's really hard for me to isolate off why that changeup has been so bad. I remember writing earlier this year that I thought it was a slider problem. He had like a four start stretch in the middle of the year. I think it was maybe mid June where he, I thought he actually went back to his old curveball. I remember start in on the South side here in Chicago where he was throwing like the velo on that thing dropped down to like 86 and it picked up a ton of drop. And then I was like, that's kind of weird. Like I, I didn't expect him to do that. And I think he might've just actually flipped back to his old curve. So if you look at like his plot, you'll see like the concentration of sliders. And then it'll like, there's some deeper pitches down there, down here in this window where it's like that's drop and lower velo that looked like curves to me, but then it just completely reverted back to the old slider. So like you have these ebbs and flows of him for the slider the entire year that I've been following that I've thought were something and then you look at the resulting slug 22 to 23 and it's the exact same. Like there's no difference in performance quality on the pitch, despite the fact that, you know, the pitch to me, to my eye was like way down for the first couple of starts of the season. He seemed to correct it. He went back to this weird curve thing. Then he corrected it again. And now in this last like month and a half for him, the pitch has been plus like it's back to what it has been mostly in 2022. And yeah, the results still aren't really strong. But as you said, like he has these starts where he goes nine and complete game and it looks locked in. And like, 
every single time that's happened this year, I've kind of maybe bought back in a little bit and then it just doesn't go the right way such that it's, it's hard for me to isolate off what's wrong. Like the changeup's getting killed. I can't tell you why, you know, I'm not sure if it's just natural regression. I, I have trouble kind of isolating off what the problem was with him. I always thought it was the slider, but I'm not totally convinced it's that. So th- that's exactly kind of segues into, into one of the points that I wanted to bring up here, which is, you know, we've seen a lot of guys that pitch to contact succeed. And and I think what, Sa- what took Sandy to another level, because Sandy was always a you know pretty, uh, pretty solid pitcher for a couple of years up to that point where you just, you knew he was going to eat innings. You knew he was going to get ground balls and show you flashes. Last year was where it was like, oh, he's getting more whiff. And all of a sudden, you know, you see this special Cy Young talent. But when you have sinker, you know, again, breaking downwards, hard change up, breaking downwards, the slider is more horizontal. But at the end of the day, like it's going to be playing at the bottom third of the zone. I, I thought what would kind of separated him last year from years prior was the ability to buzz that four seamer at the top. It just gave him mm-hmm. another region. I, I, at least I, that's what it seemed like to me and just gave hitters another thing to think about, because I felt like a lot for a lot of the time hitters were kind of eliminating that top third of the zone and working downwards. And. I don't know if if that has been a pitch that he's thrown a little bit less this year or if hitters are kind of giving him that and saying, hey, we're just going to look down at the bottom of the zone. Like, do you feel like you need to be able to pitch top and bottom if you're able to go east and west like he does? Obviously, we see guys succeed that work with everything breaking downwards, but there's even more pressure on consistently getting weak contact, not walking anybody and having a good defense behind you. Yeah, to your point, I think the sinker usage is up and the force team usage is slightly down for him. That's the only like usage approach change that I see that's, you know, materially different, even though it's only a couple percentage points. Yeah, I, I do think it's important to elevate to some extent to change eye level, especially like righty to lefty and such. But you also have to consider like in Sandy's case, it makes sense because he has good command. But like if you don't have strong force team shape, you can't do that if you don't have good command because like if you're missing down or you're missing anywhere into the zone, that pitch is going to get killed to the point yeah. where like the risk reward on that execution probably isn't worth it. But Sandy yeah. has the command good enough to execute that and make it work. So like, you could probably take a dead zone poor shape. Like he, he's kind of has a dead zone fastball forcing, but again, like dead zone comes with the concept of like velocity he throws so hard that it, you could argue it's not really dead zone or that the dead zone shrinks so much. He comes out of the dead zone because of the velo. So like if he has good command, I'm fine with him elevating that up. And it makes sense that maybe he needs to do it more. As whether that helps like the change up in some of the other elements of the repertoire, I'm not entirely sure. It makes me think of Yuri Perez too on that same team. It was a very similar approach to him where he's like the, he's a fascinating case to me where it's like the stuff plus on the four seam isn't, or let me see if I have this right. The stuff plus on the four seam is really good, but it plays down. All the secondaries are, are dominating hitters and they all grade below stuff plus. And like he takes the fastball earlier when he came up and was like putting it kind of middle away, down away to righties. Which, like, based on the shape, you'd want that up. But I think he has kind of elevated it up more. But I almost wondered whether, like, they didn't care about the forcing. And they were just like, we want all the secondaries to play off that outer third line to righties. And let's just let it eat out there. And, like, the secondaries will all have well above average swing miss. And he'll be a good pitcher. Which is which has been true. Like, the Marlins yeah. have this weird thing where they kind of go against the grain sometimes. And it works. And, like, at some point, you just have to, like, stop doubting what they're doing. Like, they yeah. have a type. And they're good at developing that type. Maybe they can't develop every pitcher. But, like, I don't think they care. Like, I don't think it's a bad player development system. If they can only develop a certain type of pitcher, like they've shown a track record of being able to get guys to outperform stuff. Plus, you know, if that walls them off from uh, elevating and developing other guys, like I, again, like it's the risk reward balance. Like teams are going to miss on guys. Like they're fine missing on guys. If they could have Braxton Garrett have an above average year, you know, he's running into some workload problems. I think Yuri Perez is an ace, I think, or at least a two long-term 
Sandy's still an ace to me, despite some of these hiccups. So I guess in some, I'm, I'm kind of just expecting Sandy to correct it next year. Maybe he's a nice buy in like dynasty or even yeah. a redraft. I'm curious to see where he's going in fantasy and stuff. One quick follow-up real quick, Peter. Yeah. Um, I, and and the, the one thing with Fury, which was funny when I watched him in the minors, the only time he ever got beat was guys ambushing the fastball and just selling out for it because they, you weren't like, there's you three seconds there else, that he, yeah. he can lean on you. You're not hitting that. But real quick, before we get into like more pitchers and things like that, in the most like layman's terms way possible, can you describe what stuff plus provides you perspective wise uh, that, you know, you didn't have prior or maybe what it provides to the average baseball fan uh, that, you know, may not totally understand how the stat is is computed, but knows that, hey, this number is good. This number is not as good, whatever, like we've seen with WRC plus. Like, How can you break down stuff plus in the most simple way possible? Yeah, it's a combination of velocity, movement, and release. And we were looking historically at how pitches in those three buckets perform, such that we think by looking historically, we then predict how that pitch will perform. That's probably the simplest way to put it, in my opinion. And it's one individual number. It's all based around 100, above a 120, 20% above average for the most part, depending on the scaling. I won't get into that, but that's really it. We're looking historically at how that particular shape works. And it misses a lot, but is it what's giving me that I haven't have? Or you go, yeah. No, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was gonna say, what what are those misses? Like, where where do you think it comes yeah. up a bit short? I think it comes short on a variety of instances. Command guys, I don't know if it does the best job on interaction between pitches. It misses mm-hmm. deception, a lot of biomechanical factors, which on the public side we're just always going to be blind to. Unfortunately, I don't think we're ever going to get public biomechanic data. We have extension and release height, and that's it. And if you read my stuff, it's like, like that's, that's pretty much all I ever touch on as to whether to theorize whether something's off with a guy. It's like, oh, extension is way down, release heights up. Like, something's wrong. He had a coming off aisle for mid-hip injury. It's like, okay, that makes sense. Extension's down. We kind of saw it with Joe Ryan where his extension jumped like five inches after the IL. And I was like, yeah, he was clearly hurt before the IL. You know, like, he's, he's good now. Like, I'm fine with calling him a top 20 pitcher again. Um, but, yeah, no, I think it misses in a variety of instances. But it's a really powerful tool because it allows you to kind of isolate off and, and understand – what models think a guy should be producing results wise. And from there you can determine whether, you know, it's missing, it's underperforming or overperforming. You come up with your own reasons why mm-hmm. it's just a really good objective measure. Like something like K minus walk is still probably almost going to have more predictive power, I think than stuff plus. But again, like it's such as that is such a results based thing that like in, I think this media space, we want to always try to educate people on what's going on deeper. Like, especially in my job on air and stuff like that is to like, take it, take it beyond the K minus walk. Like anybody can talk K minus walk and rank it and be like, here's your top 10 pitchers yeah. in baseball. Minus K, K minus walk. This is the most predictive stat. Probably we have. That's the simplest to understand, but it's like, I don't know. I want to know, you know, why Justin Steele has a below average fastball by stuff plus, And yet he limits barrels for two years in a row, you know, not to jump ahead on the other kind of run, a rundown here, but that's a great example. It's just like, you have a lot of instances where we might be missing something. I think personally, I see it more with left-handed pitchers that might again, just be a sampling thing. Like, as I say, like we're looking historically based off how these shapes work. If you don't have a strong comp to that shape, then it's hard kind of for stuff plus to look back and be like, okay, this is what we think that pitch will be. It almost has like less of a confidence interval. You take a right-handed four seam from an average release, average extension, and you say shape and you give me the shape. Like we could probably have less margin for error on that. Whereas if you go to like Justin Steele's kind of cut ride four seam thing from a left-handed pitcher. And you look back 20 years in that 20 year sample, you're probably not getting too many pitches that are like that such that your stuff plus confidence is, is lower. And I think that's again, something to consider. So uniqueness, I think plays into yeah, something. Outliers are great. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
and let's build on that because Justin Steele is coming off yet another dominant outing yeah. in a game that the Cubs needed him because Corbin Burns put on a masterclass, but he allowed one run. And Justin <laughs> yeah. Steele did not. The game ended 1-0, a game that the Cubs needed to win. And Justin Steele at this point, this ain't new. This isn't just a guy bursting onto the scene this year. He did this all last year. And to your point, while the stuff plus numbers aren't really exciting, right? It's not Spencer Strider. It's not Tyler Glass now. But at the end of the day, he's performing better than those two pitchers. Yeah. And he's not flashy, but he is dominant. So how do you equate, like when you rely on stuff plus so much and then you see a pitcher like this continually outperform, what are you left with? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, most of the time in anything on the data side, you're looking at sample, right? You want to get a big enough sample to understand and try to eliminate as much noise as possible in batted ball outcomes, et cetera. So in a guy like Justin Steele, like even last year when he was successful, I argued that he just didn't have command. And I honestly don't even think he still has too good of command, but I don't think it matters now because we've gotten to the point where we've seen a long enough track record of that forcing being so weird that it has worked in staying off barrel. And by weird, I just mean he's getting like eight inches more glove side movement, more cuts to his forcing than like the average forcing from a left-handed pitcher from that average slot. So like that is kind of the uniqueness that I think causes the pitch to play below average on stuff. Plus historically, we're looking at that shape and going, this doesn't really work, but there could be something about how he's landing, how he's releasing the ball, you know, any deception variable you want to come up with how long he hides the ball. I really think it might just be an angle thing of how it's released. You know, his ability now to put that inside and up away to righties, I think has been big, which is kind of like last year was a big thing that I, it sounded like John Lester communicated to Ross, which communicated to him. So like he's, he's now created almost two locations with the pitch. We kind of saw Eduardo Rodriguez do a very similar thing. That's probably the closest comp Eduardo Rodriguez's cutter to Justin Seals forcing, in my opinion. And Eduardo Rodriguez does the same thing where he toggles that pitch inside outside and effectively makes two pitches based off shape and angle. He gets a lot of backdoor takes on that pitch. Steele, I don't think, has the command of Eduardo Rodriguez, but the shape is so unique, and it does something that the hitter doesn't expect so much that it stays off barrel, and he's done an incredible job limiting hard contact and limiting you know, damaging contact on that pitch. So for me, it's tough. Like I, I generally align with stuff plus more. So if you give me a pitcher like Steele and only give me, say, 10, 15 starts where he's overperforming, even if he's generating like league average strikeout and like, kind of okay walks and limiting homers, I probably lean towards saying like there'll be some natural correction back and he won't be as good. But now we have enough of a sample to kind of maybe push stuff plus aside and be like, okay, we kind of understand the variables here. If you look at something like forcing break off arm angle, there's a little bit of an advanced theory in terms of the plotting of it. But like he and Kyle Bradish are in a very similar scenario. And again, that's lefty righty, but they're both guys that are getting a shape off their arm angle that the hitter doesn't expect. Mm. And it's as to whether that's something you can include in stuff plus is tough. That's a nuanced decision of who the model maker is. I've access to drivelines model, which isn't public. And, you know, Sarah has a great model on fan graphs. It's in their pitch modeling tab. that does a good job of kind of isolating off things like that. And it's, it's tough. Like you can't go into stuff plus and like all of a sudden say like Justin Seals fastball is now plus based on results. Like you have to create some base and almost accept outliers that are above or below average in directions that are underperforming or overperforming to have like a consistent way to communicate the model. It's, it's, you can't go in, I think and like pick off certain guys and be like, Oh, incorrect. Correct. Cause like, I don't know if in another year, the league figures out that particular shape, yeah. then maybe like, he's just not as good. And we've seen slight regression on it this year, 
but like it was so good yesterday. Like it's hard to isolate off sometimes that regression from fatigue too. Like I, he hasn't, he's going to eclipse his prior career inning total by like 60 innings this year. If they get into the playoffs again, like he's going to eclipse it by probably 70 plus. And like, that's a huge margin. I know they worked really hard in the off season to get his conditioning up to be able to do this. And it seems like it's working so far, you know, and that's a testament to him, you know, the strength conditioning staff of the Cubs front office, pushing that decision, him for buying in and moving to Arizona to be near the Mesa complex, which is huge, you know? So there's a lot of variables that go into it. You know, I, I hate to say, like, I don't know if it'll continue into next year. That might just be the stuff plus in my head saying like, listen, we just, this just doesn't work, but there could be something unique about it. So those are your two schools of thought, right? You can pick either of them. If you're a Cubs fan, I totally get leaning towards the fact that you think he'll be good for five plus years because of that fastball being so weird. You know, I think I take a little more of the objective stance and say like, I think there's going to get some regression eventually, but it's hard to deny he's been as good as he is. And I do think that goes back to the market, right? The market doesn't really have him as the top two favorite in Cy Young. Tom Tango from MLB does like a Cy Young points thing occasionally where he'll rank guys based off a couple of variables and such. And like, he never has the projection on Justin Steele going forward as good. And I just think that's an oversight in the model, whatever yeah. he's using, because like he has been good for so long that like, that's, I think where he's getting short changes. Like the, all the projections are like probably more league average, you know, probably more league average. Every single time he does this, it's like, he's probably more league average and he continues to buck that trend such that like at some point you finish the year and you outperform it by so much, like, throw away the projection for the end of the year. Like, especially intra-season, in-season like this, I think that's something like, if a guy's overperforming in a certain direction in-season, like, I think it's okay to just believe that there's some signal in there as opposed to noise. When you then go to project next year, that's a completely different story, but the Cy Young doesn't care about the projection going forward. Like, Cy Young is the best pitcher based on results. So, like, I do think that Steele's getting slightly short-changed in the market. You know, and again, like this gets into a larger discussion of like how much do you control batted ball outcomes? You know, that that is probably the main thing here. It's like FIP, fielder independent pitching is always going to isolate off and look at the guys who strike out more, walk less, and don't give up a lot of homers regardless of ERA. This is why you run in scenarios where like a guy with a 360 ERA could have the most F war on the pitching side, Fangraphs war. It's because they're doing things they control better. So Fangraphs is like, we just think this guy's a better pitcher because he these things that he can control, he's doing better at. But like, what if Justin Steele can control that ball quality than any other pitcher? You have to give him credit for that. So there's a lot of nuance to discussion, you know, and I can talk about this for a while. Cause like, I don't know whether I have a solid thought on it. Honestly, yeah. I, I imagine you guys have opinions too. It's just, cool. it's tough for me to say like a hard stance on him. I think this year he sh he's getting shortchanged next year. I don't know what the results are going to be. Yeah. Before Aram asked his question, what I will say is you weren't sure if you have a solid thought on it. I think you have a salt thought on it. That was yeah. awesome. You think I did? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, no. Arm. No, so I was going to say, you, you talk about like the way a pitch plays, and I think really good feedback as well is you just look at the chase rates on it as well. And of course, like that's just one yeah. wrinkle in it. But what, what fascinates me with Steele is you're talking about a 92-mile-an-hour fastball that is running a, a, over the last – 20 starts or so right around a 30% chase rate. Like that talks about yeah, the, yeah. the unique profile that it has. And clearly hitters just like, aren't quite picking it up the way that, that you would think. The other thing that I think is interesting is like, yeah, I do think the league can, can adjust to adjust and steal, right? Because you're getting 65% of this, of this fastball. And then, you know, another 31% of, of this slider. And then he sprinkles in whatever gets labeled as something else, or maybe the occasional taste breaking curveball. But you yeah. see a Joe Ryan who, you know, adds a splitter. And it seemed like just when it, the league could start to get adjusted to his heavy fastball usage, 
now he has this other pitch and it's like, you're able to, you know, adjust back to the league adjusting. Uh, how hard is it for, and I know it's case by case, but you know, like for guys like this that tend to to rest their laurels on two pitches, like how hard is it to then add a third pitch? Like, do you think in your experience at the big league level, because it's not like he throws that curveball very often at, at all. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's tough, man. I think, I don't know if it's necessarily as hard as it seems. I think what I've learned in talking to people in now major league teams and stuff like that is that you often get a lot of like pushback in season. Like it's just like, it's a great example of like, I feel like we see adjustments in pitchers when they're either terrible or traded. Like you rarely see like this guy's now throwing this brand new pitch or like, let's tweak the slider grip now. Like you have to be bad or on a new team in order for those changes to come. I think that one of the resistance you get when you talk to assistant pitching coaches and pitching coaches, the dynamic is often like the assistant pitching coach is looking to do something with a pitcher and either because of a, the investment or the team or B's politicking in the front office of who actually gets the final say on whether that guy should change something because of the monetary investment of the organization, you just won't have the change occur, you know? And this is like, I've been coming up with this theory and I'm pretty confident it's true running it by people is like, a guy goes to a new team and makes a change. Everyone rips the prior team for not making that change. Huh. I think over 90% of the time, that prior organization theorized the exact same change that the new organization did. It just wasn't approved or pushed up to the top to a decision maker that could actually implement it. That is the difference. Is like, I don't know whether it's just an appetite of acquiring a guy makes a team more willing to kind of make a tweak. You know, and sometimes that's just approach and mix. And like, sometimes that even might be resisted by the prior regime, the prior organization and such. But but yeah, I, I don't think it's as hard to make changes, but you know, this is, this is, I don't think it's giving away anything, but like I, obviously a lot of driveline guys that go into major league orgs, the often resistance you'll hear if you talk to any of them is just like, I'm getting used to how major league organizations operate. When you go to driveline, like you're an individual player buying into whatever they're going to tell you such that driveline trainers and anyone, and this happens at tread athletics too. And all these other third-party player development companies is like, you're going there to buy into a change. So you're going to listen to them if they're like, this isn't good. Like the twins sent a bunch of guys to driveline this offseason. Pablo Lopez at his sweeper, Joe Ryan, split change, new sweeper. He's kind of toggled between slider sweeper, figuring out the, the balance there and stuff. But like they go there and I'm sure the organization, the twins was like, just listen to them. You know, like if they tell you to do something and you want to buy it and you believe it, do it. And it has worked well for both of those guys. But if you're in an organization, I just think it's a different calculus of like, how do how does the decision get made? How does it get bubbled up to the top and then down to the player? Does the player buy in? If I'm not a top 10 team in development and don't have a track record of it, is the player actually going to be willing to buy into this change I'm suggesting? Suggesting this happens, I imagine, a lot in organizations like, you know, the Nationals and the White Sox and the Athletics who don't have the pedigree and the Rockies who don't have the pedigree of other orgs. It's like if I'm there as a player and I'm also training at another facility, that org comes to me with something. I then go back to my facility. The facility is like, I just don't think that'll help. It's like, am I going to listen to the athletics guy telling me to like do this differently? It's like, I, I don't know. So I, I do think it's like almost not as much about whether it's easy to make a change. It's just a matter of like, how easy is it actually get that change down to the field level and have the player buy in? Yeah. It's hard if you're coming up in the Rockies organization and they're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, we just... have this new fastball for you. And then you go to drive and they're like, what? <laughs> no, <laughs> don't do that. I mean, I don't know if driveline would have the answer there because, like, you're playing at altitude there all the time. It's like everything's everything you knew about design is probably almost irrelevant to some extent at the Rockies. It's just, I don't know, man. The Rockies are in a weird spot. It's just, it's fascinating that that park and the environmental effects there. 
That's why I felt bad for Gabriel Hughes. I really liked him coming out of the draft. So I got drafted really early by the Rockies. And I'm like, good luck, my friend. Well, they got Dollander too. I love Dollander. I think, I feel like he's inevitably just going to get traded, honestly. But I I thought he was really, he was one of my favorite pitchers coming out of the draft. I thought that a a team could probably make a tweak, give him a new slider, and then he'd be good. And I have no hope for him in the Rockies org now, unfortunately. No offense, Chase. I don't know if he's watching, but. No offense, Chase. Prove us wrong. Prove us wrong, man, for sure. Another pitcher on the Cubs that I really wanted to talk about because. When I watch Javier Assad, he's getting outs, man. Yeah. But then at the same time, I look at the data and I'm looking at expected ERA at 461 compared to his 296 ERA. I'm looking at a below average strikeout rate. I'm looking at an above average walk rate. But he's keeping a lot of balls on the ground. And Cubs fans have to be ecstatic because they didn't expect him to be this good for the Cubs. And yet here we are and he's dominating. What have you seen from Javier Assad, and do you believe in what he's doing moving forward? Yeah, I probably don't have as much belief there as I do in a guy like Steele outperforming. But I do think the thing that maybe we're not capturing totally with Assad is similar to what we weren't capturing for a couple of years with Cal Quantrill, where it's like multiple fastballs from a little bit of a higher release, such that you're creating some sync from a, a relatively high release. I think he's more average release, but let's say it appears slightly high. He's got some sink. He's got some cut. He's got a slider. He's got to force him off that. That three fastball approach, especially when you can command him well, and they all grade out like kind of average-ish, can allow those three pitches to play up slightly. And I know his stronger pitches are the cutter and the slider, and that's kind of what he dominates righties with. But I do think there's something to the ability to mix in multiple fastballs. And like, again, getting back to the fact that like in isolation, stuff plus might not consider pitch interaction too much, especially between fastballs and other situations. It might just say like quality of this pitch just isn't that great. So like we don't really think it's going to play. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's maybe an element we're, we're kind of missing with him. You know, he doesn't have, again, as you mentioned, like as strong of some of the underlying indicators of what he's controlling on the strikeout and walk side. He is limiting homers, I believe. And that's maybe a byproduct of Wrigley Field and such. Um, although it's kind of, ball's kind of livening up recently here. But that is kind of the thing maybe isolating off that is allowing him to outperform slightly. I'm just not like as confident that he'll be able to continue to do it. So that gets in a situation of like the angels just ra- waved all these guys. And yesterday in the office, we were all talking about like, you know, could the Cubs get one of them? Could they get a Ronald Lopez? Probably Lucas Giolito is who I'd love to come to the team. I think there's some obvious tweaks any org can make with him. I'm curious to see, you know, whether he adds a cutter. He's been having some little bit of problems with lefties this year. He seems like a really obvious ad, but like, you know, the question becomes when you get into this playoff situation is like, are you confident with Javier Saad taking the ball for five innings? in like kind of a do or die situation through game series all on the road, let's say the most likely outcome for the Cubs right now, unless they jump up above the Phillies or something like that. It's like, I, I don't know if I am, I think I'm confident with him in a, in maybe an inning or two turning over the lineup once, maybe twice, but then I'm not sure beyond that, you know? And that's, that's maybe, maybe the team at the end of the day will tell you what they believe. I think they do that sometimes by like piggybacking guys. Like I just saw this with Gavin stone, like they're clearly working on things with him and the Dodgers work. And they like piggybacked him in Boston. They openered him. And it's like, if you're openering a guy, like you're pretty confident that you want him to go six, but you're not confident in him turning over the lineup a third time. So let's mm. like, let's just not do that. Like, I think orgs communicate in very specific ways of just like doing things with guys in usage or pull or open or like change pitch type or add a pitch. Like they, they, they're telling you what they believe on a pitcher. So like, I'm curious to see what the Cubs tell us about Javier Saad in more of a leverage situation. For now, there's really no other option. Like, I think Jordan Wicks took Ben Brown's start debut, honestly. Like, Ben Brown's hurt right now, but I think he would have been the candidate to take the Jordan yeah. Wicks debut. And Wicks got in dominated, and, like, huge respect to that guy. Like, I've loved communicating with him. He's super, super polished. 
I think he's incredibly mature as a pitcher too, which is going to help just allow him to be stoic on the mound, especially when you give up like a leadoff homer to Brian Hayes and such. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious what the Cubs tell us about what they think of Assad in terms of late season usage on him. I just don't think they have any other options. And I think the player development engine there with Breslow and uh, everyone below him has done a really good job of like extracting as much value as they can, as, as results as they can from a game planning standpoint and probably a usage and optimization standpoint out of a guy like that who really wasn't considered like a may probably even a five. And now like I'm totally fine with saying he is a five. And like that is a player development win. I think we often get caught up with like, they haven't developed aces and it's like, yeah, man, no one develops aces. Like yeah. it's such a crapshoot for the most part that like getting Assad to be a viable starter and throw five to seven innings in a point in the series season where it makes a lot of sense is like, that's a player development win. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I thought it's funny. It's one of those things where, you know, when, when you're, well, I, you know, I love to, to do these prospect write-ups and, and breaking that down. And it's, it shocks me every time I'm, I'm always thinking, did I do something wrong where I'm projecting so many guys to be able to hit, you know, potentially 30 home runs. And, you know, yeah. th- these guys can do this offensively and that offensively. And, you know, there's top 100 list where it's like, there's one, two guys that I can maybe dream on becoming an ace. And of course, somebody else like Spencer Strider will you know, blow everybody's mind and, and become an ace. And you're just like, how did that happen? But I don't think people realize, like, I think the word ace gets thrown around a little bit too much. I kind of wanted your thoughts on that because yeah, w- when I project a top prospect to be a number three starter, people sometimes are like, whoa, like, what are you talking about? This guy can be an ace. And I'm like, no, if a, if your first round pick pitcher turns into a, a good number three starter, like you said, like that's a win. I don't think there's, I don't think people have the context of like pitching development specifically and how hard it is to get a guy to achieve a ceiling like that. Oh, you're spot on. I think it's a range of outcomes things with any pitcher, right? You look at things on like a probability curve. It's just like some guys have a greater chance of becoming an ace as to whether they captured is probably still below 10% for any of these guys. Yeah. You know, like I, I, I don't, like Zach Gallon is an ace. Like I, yeah. did anyone see that coming? Like no. sure, it was within his range of outcomes, but it was probably a small percent and he's happened to hit the tail outcome. Like there's a ton of upside in that. And I think organizations look at it like that, where it's like, you know, we'll take like the Cubs went Kate Horton, Jackson Ferris first two rounds. Like, I think that was a very like venture capital strategy of like, we think these guys both have the potential to be frontline starters and we can package them together and get two picks that we think are first rounders. And like, give us a greater chance of one of these guys catching that gallon outcome where it's like a 2% chance of becoming a frontline starter. And like that makes up for any, like the, the outsides return on that to have cost controlled years of a guy who's a two in a rotation is like, that's how you win. You know what I mean? Like that's crazy. And the ability to then supplement the back end of the rotation, maybe with a Jameson Tyne or another guy who's more of a three or four or five for some money who has stability. Like that's, that's how you stitch together rotations, you know? And it's like, I just think, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's just a probability. It's a curve of probabilities. And like some guys have a little more chance of being aces than others, but like you have to acknowledge that like probably the top 20 prospects of baseball all have some shot at becoming an ace. Yeah. And we, you're right. We do throw around that term a lot and it's really hard to end up becoming an ace because you look around major league baseball just because a team starts this guy on opening day, doesn't qualify them as an ace while they might be the team's number one starter. But on that note, I'm going to overreact here. (laughs) Cole Reagans of the Kansas City Royals looks like the greatest left-handed pitcher I've ever seen. No, but seriously, (laughs) uh, he's touching 100 miles an hour. 
He's coming off another incredible performance against the Pirates, albeit they can't really hit lefties. They rank 26th in Major League Baseball this season against lefties. But at the same time, it doesn't really matter the competition right now. And you look at fastball velocity among left-handers, he's up there with Jesus Zardo and Shane McClanahan, right? He mixes and matches so well. He goes with four different pitches, but you never really know what's coming. It's like each piece of a puzzle. And he is just dicing through guys. And it's so refreshing to see because we don't see a lot of left-handers throwing with that type of velocity and then maintaining it throughout his start. And this is a guy also who was traded for Aroldis Chapman and couldn't really do anything with Texas, like showed flashes as like a bullpen guy. But then he goes over to the Royals and I see Royals Twitter. They have him locked in as the number one starter for next year already (laughs) over Brady Singer. So can you talk to this hype that I think a lot of people, definitely Royals fans, are feeling about Cole Reagans? Like I turn on the TV. He's amazing, Lance. He's amazing. Yeah, he's great. I've loved watching him. I, I'll give you a little story here. So, beginning of the year, Chris Bubik, I'm sure everyone remembers, was like dominating. Was I was like a huge the breakout. Guy. Right? Huge I was Bubik super guy. in on him. Like, he was the guy that I, I started doing my these pitcher notes and stuff. And I was like, yeah, I mean, this he's just a completely different pitcher. Like, his velo's up, his release is down, his fastball has more carry. He's got two new pitches. Like, this was reworked. The changeup is better. It's like, I, you're not even looking at the same pitcher. So, like, in my mind, there, it's just like, again, the curve probabilities. Like, I just think there's a greater chance he outperforms. He obviously got hurt. But I remember tweeting that and saying, like, is the Royals player development on the pitching side getting better with a question mark? Immediately, I had like three DMs that were like, it's not the Royals, it's not the Royals, it's not the Royals. <laughs> it's like, I was like, oh, man, did I miss this? Because they added a Guardians pitching coach, I believe, in the offseason. And I think they made another front office change on the pitching side. So I was like, OK, like I kind of bought in a little bit and I should have done more sourcing and just checked with some people. But I really think that I, they just had some guys go to other third party player development facilities. And like, that's what happened. It seems to me like with Reagan's like Reagan's is a tread athletics guy from what I understand. Like he just, I don't know whether Fred brought these changes to him in the off season or what? Like, I, I don't exactly know the full details of it, but like anytime you add four miles per hour to a guy's four seam, like you got to put him on the map. You know, like he was 92. Was he, I, I'm trying to think of the numbers off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure 92 he like to a, 94. But he would yeah, like now touch he's, 96 and you're like, wow, well, okay, he's got it, but he couldn't yeah. maintain that. And now he's sustaining it as a starter. It's like you look at the year over your fastball view, though, and it's just like it's astronomical. Like anytime you do that to a guy, it's like just kind of almost throw away your priors to some extent and just like accept the fact that you might have a better than median outcome here of like the guy being really good. And they also like made a small tweak. They gave him a slider, which is just a pure bullet. And it's up at 87. That's his best pitch now. I think the stuff plus on that is like, two standard deviations above average. So it's basically saying it's like, you know, better than probably 90% of sliders in baseball. You think it's and better like, than his changeup? His changeup is unreal. I'd have to look at the swing miss there. Stuff plus likes the slider better. But again, going back to the point, stuff plus misses changeups all the time. Yeah. I think the slider's in zone more. And I'd argue that most changeups are probably more chase. This slider to me seems like he could actually locate it. So I guess I'll go the sliders better. But that's just off the top of my head, probably relying a little bit too much on stuff plus there. But that pitch is new. Relative to when he was a reliever with the Rangers, if you look at it, it's just it's just a bullet. And generally, that bullet pitch, you have to get it hard. And the harder you can get that pitch, the better it is. It's coming from a lefty slot, which is weird, too. It just works. It works really well. Adjusted the cutter up a little slightly more arm side with it. You know, the fastball velo, the changeup, as you mentioned, is really good. Like, I'm kind of in on it, man. Like, yeah. I, I don't see much reason so to be it. off him. I don't know necessarily <laughs> whether I want to, like... I haven't really looked. I might do some kind of pitcher ranks next year. It feels inevitable given how much I've looked at guys, but I'm not sure where I'd land them for next year. That's probably the 
the interesting scenarios like what to do with him ranks wise. Um, probably, but probably he, right after Garrett Cole at number two, probably. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe number one. No, yeah. I mean, he feels to me like he's got to be like a top, like the top 40 ish guy or so top oh, 35. Higher. You think he's higher? No, I yeah, don't know. I mean, I'm just, I'm just amazed uh, by what I've been so, seeing lately. And I just love seeing this. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun, man. I love breakouts like this. So there might be some recency bias here. I want both your answers. Sure. Sure. Are you taking him or Jesus Lazardo moving. And, 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 and let's put the, I mean, both have had injury issues. He's also a double yeah, TJ man. guy, which is even more amazing yeah. that he's come back with the velocity. Let's throw that aside and just say like, you need 10 starts, uh, you know, to start next season. And next you got to pick the okay. guy that's the better, the better starter next year. <laughs> Who are you going with in that span of 10 starts? Jesus Lazardo or Cole Reagans? Who's answering first? <laughs> answer first? I'll go first. Yeah, you go first. Yeah, you're the guest. You got to go. We're throwing you into the cold tub. I'm going to go. I'm going to go Lazardo. I don't know if this is fading yeah. Reagan's too much, but I track record, you know, I think Lazardo is a good pitcher. Like he's multiple pitches. He's pitched deep. Like I, I think maybe I'm just a little risk averse. And I, I think mm-hmm. that Lazardo's shown more track record. Doesn't have double TJ. Like, yeah, give me Lazardo there. That's a tough one though. I mean, I'm thinking about it. So. It yeah. shows you where Reagan's is at. Imagine if I asked you that question, if I just sent you that snippet six months ago. Yeah. You know, yeah I'd be like, wait, Reagan's is actually a starting pitcher. Yeah. Like, or like yeah. what happened to Jesus Lizardo? Like, yeah, yeah like yeah. it would be something crazy. So Jesus Lizardo was on our show. Cole Reagan's has not been yet. So I will go with Lizardo. <laughs> Lizardo yeah. gives me the same vibes as what Cole Reagan's is doing right now. When yeah. Lizardo is on. Why I asked. It's just, electric and it's from the left side and it looks like no matter who the hitter is when Lazardo is on or when Reagan's is on you'd really have no chance because you can't decide which pitch is coming and then all of the pitches in a row are elite and when they're commanding it it's just you gotta see ball hit ball and you can't really go up there with any sort of approach because this stuff is just too damn good so moving forward to another pitcher so Christian Javier has been a big name that we talk about here on the Just Baseball Show. Because last year, I said, I don't know if I truly believe in him as a starter. And it was because he was a two-pitch guy. And as a swing man, the two pitches, the fastball and the slider, weren't elite. What does he do in 2022? The fastball and slider were Unfucking believable. And then in the playoffs, he throws a six inning no hitter. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, Framber's great. But this Christian Javier guy, I couldn't have been more wrong. Then this year, the fastball is ticked down. The slider yeah. is ticked down. And he has not looked nearly like the pitcher. But I'm not saying like, oh, I was right now because then next year it could tick back up. Like, I truly think it's about the stuff plus with these two pitches. Yeah with Christian Javier, like how do you view him moving forward? Because we've seen incredible peaks and we've also seen a lot of lows this year. Yeah. It's, he's a tough one, man. I think, I think what he illustrates is that guys who don't have deep mixes where it's basically two pitches can run into like some outsized variants more than others. And that causes some like concern for what is stuff plus capturing. Right. Cause like, I think, you know, Saracen's model on Fangraphs at the beginning there, I remember like trading te- uh, messages with him back and forth on Twitter where it was like, he was pretty off him initially because he's like, my stuff plus sees a downtick on everything. And I was like, you know, I get that, but it's it's still two plus pitches per drivelines model and stuff. So it's like, you're taking it from like plus plus to like plus. Like, I still think that's an above average arm. 
Well, maybe what I didn't capture in that moment, because Eno's the Eno was right here. He's had a terrible year and he's been off him the entire year. I always kind of bought back in and thought that everything was still good enough. It's just that like when you only have two pitches and you run into small variants, I think that variance has larger effects. So like he's release height up slightly. I think the fastball carries down, the velo's down. So like, and they're all really subtle changes, but when you combine all those really subtle changes, it does take down stuff plus. And then the fact that he's only throwing two pitches is like, I think that's a problem. I think that's a problem with some guys who only have two pitches. Maybe gets back to the Justin Steele point is like, if he runs into any subtle regression, he's only throwing two pitches. Like he throws a curve. He kind of throws a change up in a sinker and stuff like that. But like, I don't know until I actually see those five plus percent of the time, I'm not really going to call them like factors in his repertoire that hitters are going to respect. So like, I do think that like, I, this is just a working theory of mine. I don't really have data to back it up, but I do think guys who have small repertoires run into issues with small variants more than others where you could, mm. if you're a pitcher who has four pitches and you run into an issue, say on your four seam or your slider, like you can maybe hide it by upping usage on other pitches or dropping forcing usage. Whereas like, I don't necessarily know if Javier can hide it, you know? Mm. And I, I also will say, I wrote down, let's see if I can find it quick. Uh, I wanted to get the quote correct, but the Astros are really closed off team in terms of what they say about guys, but there's an article in the athletic where their pitching coach said there are subtle comma little things. We're trying to adjust back to how he was moving last year. That's from Josh Miller, their pitching coach. And that stuck out to me. Cause like the Astros never say anything about anything. They never say anything about injuries. They never say anything about what's wrong with the guy, but they acknowledged something was wrong. And it didn't totally show up in some of the mechanical variables I mentioned, like release and extension. Extension, I think, was the same. Release height was up, down slightly. I saw a lot of variance there, which could be speaking to what Josh Miller's talking about, the Astros pitching coach. But, like, they acknowledge something's going on. And that might be another situation where, like, Stuff Plus caught some of it. But, like, it's also maybe something that the Astros are aware of and they haven't been able to adjust with him. Maybe it's physical. Maybe we find out this offseason he's dealing with an injury, but again, the Astros are never going to tell you that because they never tell you anything about injuries. So like, there's a lot of like concern and mystery around him where it was like, I'd be much more confident if they just IL'd him and were like, yeah, he's, his shoulders been nagging him all year. Like, yeah, yeah. his knee's been off. You know, he, he banged it at whatever point it stuck with him for 15 starts. Like some of that crazy stuff can actually happen. And we saw that we were just talking about Joe Ryan. Like yeah. he's, he was terrible for like a month and a half. And like, he goes on the aisle with, I think it was hip or something like that. I might yeah. be wrong there. And it's like, he comes back and he's fine. It's like, you know, that gets back to the balance of like how injured is the guy? Can he pitch through it? If he's pitching through it, how good is he? It seems like Javier's just pitched through something the entire year to me. And Astros are never going to tell us that. So yeah. like, I, I, I'm speculating here and I don't like speculating on injury stuff, but like the fact that they said, we're trying to get him back to how he was moving last year is an acknowledgement that he hasn't been moving how he was in 22. Yeah. And like this stuff regressed. So like, what else am I to speculate on? Like I, we have some strong parameters and roadmaps here of like why he's struggling. And I, I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm totally confused with him. And what's interesting is even if there's not like a specific, specific injury, you, know, you see the downtick and stuff. You see the command kind of be a little spotty and you, you, you could phantom IL him or something like that, but they can't because their, their whole rotation has been pretty yeah. decimated this year. They didn't have Arquiti for almost the entire season. Luis Garcia's hurt. They, they didn't get McCullers back. Like there were so many, and they didn't have Verlander in the fold until recently. So they needed Javier to throw through whatever he was potentially dealing with. And his four or five was probably better than what they were going to get from a Brandon exactly. Belak or somebody else. And imagine if JP France didn't step up, but the last thing I'll mention on Javier is fastball down a tick, which is, you know, that that can happen. Like the, the shape is still good. What's interesting is the slider. He's landing that for a strike 
around 55% of the time. And over his last 10 starts, only 52% of the time. And it just looks like guys just aren't even swinging at it. Like they, they, they are pretty much, I'm looking at a 34% strike rate over his last, or excuse me, a 34% swing rate over his last 10 starts. So for me, it's like, they're just hunting the fastball. That's the only pitch he's throwing for a strike right now. And it's diminished. Uh, what do you think contributes to, to the lack of command of a, of a breaking ball? Could that kind of boil back to the injury? Yeah. So Verducci wrote a piece earlier this year where he was like, teams are getting really good at understanding tipping. And I always wondered whether the variable there to understand whether a guy was tipping was just swing rate. So like that was immediate thing that jumped to my mind off that point is like, if you have a drastic swing rate drop on an individual pitch or a gain on an individual pitch, that almost makes me wonder whether that is the only thing we have on the public side to understand whether a guy's tipping. Cause teams are using Hawkeye and Kinetrax and other software to basically output what a tip is and then seeing if hitters can pick up on it really objectively. We don't have that information. We're never going to get that, you know? So like that's something that's been in my mind every time a guy struggled for a really long period of time is whether he's tipping and they can't correct it or their team doesn't even know. I would like to think the Astros knew or know if it is tipping, you know, but swing right down on a pitch like that is huge. The other speculation is just that teams have gotten really good versus sweepers. Like I think sweepers year over year have gotten a little less effective. They're still very effective, but the league is starting to understand how to hit them. So like that could be an element too. It's just like they know where to swing on the sweeper and they're doing more damage on it. I think the horizontals there is down a little too. Javier is just a really good example of like a bunch of subtle things compiling into like yeah. probably he's probably pitching worse than you would expect him to pitch given yeah. all the subtle changes, you know, and that sometimes happens too. It's like, we have all these subtle changes. We think he'll be worse. And then he's dramatically worse. Yeah. And you're like, okay, he's worse, but he's also getting a little bit of luck, bad luck there. Maybe. So like, he's a really tough one to isolate off. Um, I almost think I want to buy him next year just because like, give me an off season with the Astros front office and figure out what's going on. And he comes next year and he's maybe more of an average starter. Maybe he's never the sub three guy he was in the past, but like if they get it back to three, five, four, like that's, you know, ERA, that's fine. Like that they'll yeah. take that, you know, maybe his best years have passed him. Pitching can be so finicky. I've learned to just not doubt Astros pitchers, right? I know. I, I know. I wasn't really a JP France guy either. And look what he's fucking doing. Yeah, so he's been great. Yeah. So I have one more question for you, but just, I want to finish on this Astros point because I think Aram, Jack, and I, we keep going back and forth on what we think this Astros rotation is going to look like. Like, we all know the names, right? And I think it's easy to just say, yeah, it's probably going to be Verlander, Framber, France, Hunter Brown, Christian Javier. But in a seven-game series, you're only probably going to go with three to four guys. So Mm -hmm. if you're Dusty Baker, the manager of the Astros, how are you slotting in this rotation? Like which of those five do you have the most confidence in to get the Astros another <sighs> World Series? It's tough. I mean, Verlin is the one. Uh Framber's the two. And then from there, I think you match up. Um, which ah, it's tough, man. Like Hunter Brown was a weird one because I really liked him. I thought he was getting really unlucky. And then they moved him to the pen for like three outings and then bring him back into the rotation. I almost wonder that whether that was just working on something specifically. He's a guy I've always wondered whether he should just throw the splitter more. We've seen teams like the Rays acquire guys like that and just rip splitter more. But they also, I don't know if they've necessarily done that with guys in starter roles. You know, splitters are out of his own pitches a lot. So, like, you probably almost expect walk rate to go up. But I guess you, like, I'd have to maybe dig more into the advanced side of, like, what a combination of a France-Hunter Brown would look like. But I wonder if you go, like, three innings there, three innings there, and that's your one of your starters – 
And then you maybe pray to God that Verlander could come on short rest. You know what I mean? And throw your fourth game and not you get Verlander as your one in your four, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I guess um, you kind of answered that question. Like you wouldn't throw Javier in game four of a playoff series. Well, I mean, there's no way you can right now. Right. Like yeah. I, you have the shortest leash imaginable. You give him yeah. one time through the order. And if he cannot allow three base runners, you'll let him take the top of the lineup a second time. But like, it also depends on the lineup you're facing, you know, I guess if you're facing the lefty, lefty heavy lineup, I'd probably have a little more confidence against him. I'm trying to think of who in the AL would line up like that. Like the twins. I don't know if that would line up, but the twins have a lot of lefties that are pretty good. Um, so maybe I'd be more confident in Javier there, but like, there's no way, like there's no maybe way to look at him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a good one. Like I, there's no way I'm looking at that him and being confident that he could roll through five, six innings for me. Like no way it's crazy. So I, I guess I'm just off him. I don't know. I got to see something like and the fact I can't get over the fact that the Astros pitching coach was like, we're trying to get him back to how he was moving last year and his results have still been bad. Like it acknowledges to me that there was something wrong. Is something wrong with him? They haven't been able to fix it. So I, I just can't get over that one point. The Astros never give us any information. And when they give us something like that, you have to listen. Absolutely. So my last question for you, who is one pitcher right now that you see in the data or you watch on TV that you are really buying into that maybe the general public ha- hasn't seen enough of uh, or just doesn't fully realize how good this pitcher is? Oh, it's a good one. I see this initial question you asked me is who my favorite pitcher. So I have my favorite pitcher. Prep. <laughs> yeah. You changed the last minute on me here. I don't know if I have necessarily deep cut. I think that's something I'm sure you guys get DM'd all the time where it's like, Hey man, give me your like top under the radar guys. And yeah. it's like, bro, I don't know. Like I, I I'm going off individual starts and such. I will say, I think this might be a really hot take, but the angels are in such a weird spot right now that I think any of their starters are gettable in the off season, honestly, for, to, for them to rebuild. They're, they're like Sandoval and, and Reed Demers are gone. I think in this offseason. maybe it's a hot take. Who knows? I really like Reed Demers. I think Demers is a good pitcher. I think they've done a really good job of optimizing everything off his fastball. He's throwing like wacky sliders. The angels are, su- it's crazy to say the angels are actually kind of sharp on some of the stuff they do with seam shift awake, but they are. Um, they have some individuals there that I know are were in the public space and are not in the public space anymore that are are contributing to decisions there that are smart and sharp and like ahead of what other teams are doing. I get they've been terrible, but like I really I think Reed Demers is a good pitcher. Like I think he does some wacky stuff. You know, there's multiple pitches there that work for him. I get it's not a strong fastball, but he's a guy that I think if he got and like a smart team just optimizes usage with him and he's a nasty lefty in another org for an extended period of time. We saw him do it last year. We saw him jump velo this spring. It hasn't really worked out, but he's a guy that like plays with his slider shape. And I'm going to guess that's more orientation tweaking. Um, so I'll agree Demers a bit in terms of dark horse. Um, I don't know if there's anyone else that's jumping to mind. That is really good. I think Yuri Perez can be like a real front end guy. Ricky Tiedemann in the minors. Oh Everyone was kind of off him because of the injury, but like, I'm just, I just kind of fade injuries generally until it happens enough at the major league level for me to be t- entirely off the guy. So I like Ricky Tiedman a lot. Um, I'm not sure if there's anyone else off the top of my head. I can think of. I'm trying to think of my last couple like notes. And if there's anyone that like jumped to me, Oh, Luis Severino is a fun one. He's a free agent oh. in the off season. I, this guy's giving me such a headache this year, man. Like beginning of the year, just looked terrible. I don't know if he was tipping. It goes back to the point of like when a guy is that bad of aggression, you know, I thought the problem was that he just didn't have the cutter he had last year. That was the f- main thing that backed up to me. And he pitched terrible for a couple months. And then like that cutter came back in a star where he looked really good. And I bought back in. I was like, yeah, that's where I've been looking for this entire year. It was like, now you have a cutter back from last year. He's selling out that pitch. That's 90 to 92. It's a good offering grades out plus. 
you know, and then his last start, he goes out and dominates, right? He pitched really well. I think it was against the Angels. And like, he's a guy that hitting into this offseason, I believe he's a free agent. So I'm thinking more on the angle of like, who's a free agent this offseason that I could see a team making a subtle adjustment with and him being back to what he was. For me, it's Luis Severino. Like, I still think there's four pitches there. I don't know what's happening this year with him. Um, I, I'm kind of in on him as like an offseason acquisition for a team that probably doesn't have to pay that much and can get a starter that could probably be a three or a four and maybe get him back to what he was in 22. Um, so I guess, I guess Detmers, I think, is a guy I'm going to speculate is traded um, as the Angels clear house and figure out what they're doing with Adotani. Feels inevitable he's gone now. And then Severino's a guy that I like as like an acquisition this offseason. As you can tell, I enjoy guys who have been terrible because yeah. I think there's more opportunity for a buy-in and an adjustment when the guy realizes he has been terrible than if a guy's been like mediocre, like a 4-2, 4-4 ERA guy where it's like, hey, man, I could just survive in the majors. It's like that guy I think has a better chance of them blowing up than the guy who like Lucas Giolito, Corbin Burns, who's been absolutely dreadful and then makes a really nice adjustment. It becomes good again. So I'm looking at the guys that have been bad and trying to figure out whether I can make a subtle tweak as an organ, get them back to being reasonable to good. And for me, the games that jump out are like Detmer, Severino, even a Giolito. I think Giolito is a really interesting waiver claim for a team now where like he's running, he's running into the two pitch problem to some extent. I know there's a curve in there, but like he's primarily a fastball changeup guy. Um, or no, excuse me, he's slider. He's curves. He's kind of backed off, but he's a three pitch guy. But like the slider hasn't been that good this year. He's had run into problems versus lefties. It makes a lot of sense to me to try to add some kind of true cutter in there into his repertoire and talking to some other organizations about him. You know, I think he's a guy that a team could acquire and run into again my situation where like guys make changes when they go to new teams or mix changes or something. Like just spread out the mix. Maybe don't throw the fastball as much. Angels got the release height up over his last couple starts. Stuff plus popped, even though the results haven't been good. I see some trends there that could actually, I think, make him like a reasonable starter down the stretch run forever, whoever claims him. He's inevitably going to be claimed. I've been pushing for the Cubs to try to grab him and maybe add that cutter in and, and toggle down fastball usage and see what see what happens. But yeah, I'm looking, it's funny. I guess maybe people have like, maybe other people look at like the Reagans and stuff and are like, yeah, that guy's going to be great. I look at the guy who's just been terrible and I'm like, can I make a small tweak to get him back to being average? Because like that can have outsized effects. I think then like the guy who's amazing and maybe regresses back to the mean. So I'm looking at terrible pitchers and wondering whether I can make them good. <laughs> and, and I love that answer. That's why I had to throw you off there because after talking oh, yeah, you got you about all this pitching, I, I had to see kind of who was in the weeds that you were really excited about. So we will end of course on your favorite pitcher. Who does Lance yeah. turn on the TV to watch every fifth day? I got to I got to admit I've been watching a lot of the Mariners rotation especially cuz they have young guys. I really enjoyed Brian Wu despite kind of his struggles and now IL. I think he's on the IL. Bryce Miller's just been fascinating. So I guess rotation I go to the I go to the Mariners cuz I love George Kirby and Logan Gilbert. Have had conversations with both of them. They've made some cool tweaks each of them. Logan Gilbert to the splitter, Kirby going away from the gyro ball to more of a sweeper and getting good swing miss there. He just also has that innate command that I think everyone thinks they can develop in pitchers and I think it's just innate in some guys. So rotation-wise, I think I turn on the Mariners most often to watch their starters. Individual pitcher, though, I, I admit it. I think I mentioned him earlier, but like I love Zach Gallon. I love watching Zach Gallon. I think he did some cool stuff with his cutter where he actually deliberately toggles that shape down. I've been meaning to talk to him. I think I'm actually traveling with the team to to chase, to to see that series where the Cubs play them in a couple of weeks. And I, he's on my list of guys to definitely talk to because like I see a large difference. It's similar to what Zach Wheeler did. I had a, vid- a video ages ago. I think Wheeler's backed off the cutter, but... Wheeler like changed his slider shape. I think it's tracked as a slider. I see it as a cutter because it has a lot of backspin, but lefty righty, he would like toggle the shape where he would like make it more lift to go up and into lefties. And like, 
people will say that guys actually do that, but rarely does it actually show up in the underlying shape where there's a deliberate change where you almost looks like a different pitch. But if you toggle the plot of Zach Allen lefty to righty, the cutter is a completely different offering. You could call it, you could track it as two different pitches to me or two different subtypes, honestly. Um, so I like guys like that who have like a subtle thing that isn't really picked up on. Um, curveball's nasty, good, good fastball. You know, I just think he's got a deep mix and he also has that element of command where like, I enjoy seeing how he's sequencing and locating more than guys who don't have good command where like, I can't tell sometimes whether he's intentionally locating the pitch there or if he's just missing. So like, I tend to stay away from the guys with bad command. Cause it's like, I don't know. Like it's hard for me to watch that and go like, Oh yeah, he meant to miss arm side 12 inches with that pitch. Like I just don't think he has good command, but I like the command guys with deep mixes. Cause you can theorize and watch them and try to try to maybe figure out what they're doing in terms of sequencing and location. Well, Lance, really appreciate you coming on, my man. Great conversation about pitching, and everyone has to go check out your work. Before you go, let the people know where they can find you. Yeah, Lance B-R-O-Z is first four letters of my last name. Pretty much anywhere I'm, I'm doing some kind of content. I have a Substack, Substack that LanceBroz.substack.com. YouTube, I'm trying to kick up and do some more content there. I love the videos, kind of doing some screen share stuff to cut down my editing time, so I'm not spending as much time editing. But those are fun. I just basically walk you through how I basically do those Substack notes every day. Twitter, Instagram, you know, a lot of shorts, TikTok. So wherever you're consuming content, I'm probably there. That was awesome. I mean, what a conversation with Lance. Just an encyclopedia of pitching. Hopefully we mentioned your favorite pitcher, and hopefully you all enjoyed this episode brought to you by BetMGM, the king of sportsbooks. Use promo code baseball. It's in the episode description. For all of our card collectors out there, make sure to use alt. That is in the episode description. It is completely free. And go get yourself some Just Baseball merch, people. I'm rocking the rope hat. Arms rocking the rope hat. We got plenty in the merch store. Go click that. And if you enjoyed this interview, this talk about the fucking angels sucking, click that subscribe button because we have so much more baseball content coming for you here on the Just Baseball Show, Monday through Friday, five days a week. And if you're enjoying it, listening on audio, if you could rate and review five stars, whether it be on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We'll be back tomorrow with the three of us. We got a lot to talk about, Arm Layton. And that is Arm, and I am Peter. And with that, thank you, everybody.